And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is the reading of God's word. Thanks. Well, good evening again, everyone, and welcome to Disciples Church. It occurred to me when I stood up before you at the beginning of the service that I didn't tell you who I was. So my name is Dave Hahn. Uh, it is a huge joy and privilege for me to be able to be with you tonight and to be able to open God's word. I uh, love that we get to be able to do this together. So I thought I'd uh, start tonight with a confession, um, one that will likely not surprise some of you, especially those of you who know me. Uh, and it is this, I kind of sucked at most school subjects, uh, primarily math, science, and social studies, so it wasn't the important ones or anything. Um, but, curiously, I was always pretty good at English. That was kind of my thing, it just came naturally to me. Um, I've always been fascinated by words and people who have great vocabularies. I love listening to people who have these really great vocabularies. And I also think it's really interesting to think about how words have evolved over time. Now, there are words that we use now whose meanings have nothing to do with what those same words meant 50 years ago. And the best examples that I could think of to prove that idea are not very family friendly, so I will not share them. Speaking of which, the word naughty <laughs> used to mean that you had not or nothing. Makes sense, right? That's what the word not means. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. We sing those words. Somehow naughty became to mean something other than nothing. But now, of course, it refers to one who behaves badly, and I have no idea why. So I don't know about you, but I'm finding myself using this phrase much more than I used to. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? I just can't assume that my definition or understanding of a certain word or phrase matches that of the person who is using it. So, in an effort to assume the best of someone and try to come to understand them, it is important that we do two things right. That we understand meaning and that we understand context. How would that person define the word or phrase and in what context are they using it? Over time, this English word set, S-E-T, has taken on 430 different meanings. The word go has 368 definitions. And in the highly anticipated release of the Oxford English Dictionary in the year 2037, 
the word run is expected to have 645 different meanings. So definitions are important, but I think context is even more important. It helps us to understand what that person means. And that is especially true of the Bible because the Bible was not written originally in our time, our place, or our language, and so context is all the more critical. As one pastor and friend of mine puts it, if you take the text out of the context, all you're left with is a con. If you take text out of the context, all you're left with is a con. So in our time today, we are going to look primarily at two words from today's passage. The word called and the word sent. And we find versions of both of those words in verse 7 which reads, And he called the twelve and began to send them out. So let's first look at the word called. There are several uses of the word called in the Bible, but they don't all mean the same thing. So it's important to understand the author's intent in using that word because as we have learned, words can be flexible. Looking at the word in its biblical context, sometimes called means invited. Like in Matthew 22, where Jesus tells the parable of the wedding feast. Beginning in verse 1 of Matthew 22, we read, And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. In other verses, the word called means chosen, like in Romans 8.30, which reads, For those whom he foreknew, he being God, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And though he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Chosen before the foundation of the world, that is what foreknew and predestined means. And if you are predestined, the Bible says you are called. Then, at the end of Matthew 22, you see the joining together of both of these definitions of the word called. Beginning in verse 11 of Matthew 22, it reads, But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. So, not all who are invited will come. And not all who come are chosen. So that leaves us with a very, very big question to consider and try to answer. How can we know that we have been called and chosen by God? How can we know that we have been called and chosen by God? 
Paul, in writing to the church of Thessalonica, said this. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. We know, brothers, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So according to these verses, the chosen of God have not only heard the words of the gospel, but with the joy and power of the Holy Spirit, they have been convicted of sin and they have been convinced of righteousness. Convicted of sin by the power of the Holy Spirit and convinced of righteousness in the joy of the Holy Spirit. So ask yourself, have I not only heard the gospel, but also been convicted by its power? Have I not only heard the gospel and been convicted by its power, but received it by faith and with joy? Because to realize that you were once condemned, but are now forgiven, is a joy. To realize that you were once dead and now are alive is a joy. So if you have heard the gospel, been convicted by the Holy Spirit, and received the good news of Jesus Christ with great joy, be assured, my friends, you are among the chosen of God. I love how one pastor put it. He said, your faith is not a witness to any prior power in you. It is a witness to God's choosing you. It is not a testimony to something so small as self-determination, but it is a testimony to the same power that created the universe. God chose to raise you from the dead. So, you and I get no credit for any part of God saving us. None. Because according to Ephesians chapter 2, even the faith that we have to believe is a gift of God. So that we would not, and that we could not boast. Because if it was faith that we conjured, Guess what we're going to brag about? I got it right. But you didn't. And you also don't have to worry, because faith is a gift, you don't have to worry whether or not you measure up. Because let me let you in on a little bit of a secret. You don't. You don't. Not on your own. And by giving us faith to believe in his son, God has given us all the evidence that we need. Hear me in that. He has given us all the evidence that we need that we are called and that we are chosen. How can I know? Because he has given you the faith to believe. And that faith is a gift. 
We could say amen and go home right now, by the way, because I'm all pumped up up here about that, but we're going to press on. You know, I want to give you your full dollar's worth. <laughs> uh, let's look at the second word of the day sent, having been encouraged about being chosen. Second word of the day is sent. And Jesus is clear. If you have been called, you have been sent. If you've been called, you have been sent. Well, sent to do what, Dave? What a great question. Thanks so much for asking it. At a high level, the answer to that question that you asked is fairly simple. We go wherever Jesus tells us to go. We do whatever he tells us to do. We say whatever he tells us to say to whomever he tells us to say it. Friends, we live in a world that is a dark and evil place and many of the people who live in it are lost, sinful, and spiritually dead. But on the outside, they look like anyone else. But on the inside, they are full of corruption and decay, separated from God and in dire need of rebirth. But not so. Not so for a disciple of Jesus Christ. That was who we were. That was who we were. But not anymore. Not anymore. We have been born from above, forgiven of every sin by the cross of Christ and made alive in Christ through his resurrection. And he is sending us out among the spiritually dead to share the good news of salvation found in him so that they too would be who God has made us, you and I, in Christ. If you've been called, you've been sent. Because every disciple is a priest, a minister of reconciliation, an ambassador of God's kingdom, and a missionary. Not just the so-called professionals. Every one of you. In John 20, 21, after Jesus had risen, he appeared to the disciples. And beginning in verse 19, we read, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, Jesus said, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Called disciples are sent disciples, just as Jesus himself was sent by his father. And that means that everyone who has been called has been commissioned and everyone who has been commissioned has been equipped and empowered by the Holy Spirit. That is who you and I are as the chosen of God, as the called in Christ. 
And from the first day that Christ had called, these disciples, these 12, had been with Jesus. They had spent day and night, each day of every week, with Jesus. And he went where his father told him to go. As he did what his father told him to do. As he said what his father told him to say. But now, in our reading today, it was their turn. It was their turn. See, until this moment, Jesus was the only one to have preached the message that he had preached and performed the signs and the miracles he performed. But now, Jesus was sending the 12 to do and say the very things he had been saying and doing. And this is a hugely significant moment in the ministry of Jesus and his 12 disciples. And these 12 disciples came to be referred to as apostles, which comes from the Greek word apostello, a word which means sent out. Did you know that that's what it means to be an apostle? Sent out. Verses 12 and 13 of today's passage tells us what being sent out looked like for the apostles. And just for your reference, this same story is told in Luke 9 and in Matthew 10, and I will make references to both as we go. Verse 12 of Mark 6. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. That's what being sent looked like for them, for the 12. And I'd like to look at three interesting questions that we can and should ask regarding these two passages. First, to whom did the disciples go? Two, what did they preach? And three, why were miracles necessary? So first, to whom did the disciples go? Well, according to Matthew's account, Jesus gave them these instructions. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. See, God had promised long ago that salvation would come to and from his own people, the nation of Israel, Jews. And Jesus' birth, his ministry on earth, and the missionary journeys of his disciples would be a fulfillment of that promise. Two, what did the disciples preach? The same message as Jesus. First, that they should repent, a turning from sin and a turning to Christ. And they also proclaimed that the kingdom of God had come in the person of Jesus Christ. See, prior to the death and the resurrection of Christ, this was what Jesus and his disciples preached. Repentance and the kingdom of God having come. But on this side of the cross, on this side of the resurrection, in view of his death and in view of his resurrection and in view of his indwelling spirit, our message is not just one of repentance. We have been given a message of redemption. We have been given a message of reconciliation and righteousness and restoration in Christ. So were the miracles 
necessary, the miracles that Christ commanded them to perform. See, friends, like Jesus, the disciples gave sermons and they gave signs to the people because during this time, in the eyes of the original audience, both were necessary. All throughout Judea, there were plenty of teachers and preachers, most of them false and not of God, because truly nothing has changed. But it was those who cast out demons, who healed the sick, who raised the dead, who showed themselves to be from God. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account, we find Jesus giving the disciples power to declare the good news. Those are the sermons. But we also find them demonstrating power over demons and death and disease. Those are the signs. And both were necessary. So the disciples were sent to say and do the same things that Jesus had been saying and doing. But we're told more than that. Verses 12 through 13 tell us why they were sent. And in verses 7 through 11, we are told how they were sent. And the how for the apostles is still relevant for you and I today. Verse 7 reads, He sent them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. So first we learn that the disciples were sent in pairs. It really is interesting to consider that we rarely see God's servants go it alone in the Bible. Adam had Eve. Do you know that the only thing that God said wasn't good in creation was that man was alone? It's the only thing. Everything else was very good, but not man being alone. Adam had Eve, Abraham had Sarah, Moses had Aaron, Elijah had Elisha, Paul had Silas and Barnabas. On and on we go, and likewise, the disciples had each other. We need partners, brothers, sisters, and friends to walk alongside in gospel community. You and I need that those who we can love and know and serve, pray for, and minister alongside. And from the very first man and woman God created, it is evident that he did not intend for us to live alone. And in Jesus sending the disciples out in pairs, we see that partnership is still God's intent. It's still what he has in mind. Gospel partners provide companionship for the journey. Credibility as each one testifies of God's love and power in their own lives. Accountability when temptations and trials would come. And gospel partners provide encouragement in times of doubt and in weakness. So, Who are your partners in the gospel? Who are you walking alongside? Who are you being sent out with? The disciples were sent with other disciples 
and they were sent with Jesus' authority. One of the things that amazed the crowds was the authority that Jesus possessed, whether it was the things he said or the miracles he performed, because Jesus lived as one who had God-given authority, not just authority from God, but authority as God. And people marveled. They were amazed. And now, Jesus was giving that same authority to his disciples. The power to preach and to heal the sick, raise the dead, and cast out demons. Things that only God does. And like the apostles, we can only give away, you and I, can only give away that which we possess. And the only things that we possess are the things that God has given or will give to us. We do not have and we do not own anything that does not first belong to God, including our very life and breath. Do you know how critical that is to understand as called and as sent disciples? That we have nothing and own nothing apart from what it is that God gives? I think it's far too common for Christians to avoid saying or doing what God has commanded them to do. Maybe it's because we wrongly believe that God is dependent upon us to get it right. That God expects us to save, to restore, and renew. That he expects us to be so persuasive, so smart, and so loving that no one will be able to resist. Until, of course, they do. Or maybe we avoid saying what God has commanded because we don't want to be rejected and have people think that we're weird or walk away from us. Because unfortunately, the approval of men is more important to us than the approval we already have in Christ. That the approval of men is more important to us than the approval of God that we already have. Disciples Church, it is not God who is dependent upon you and I, but it is we who are dependent upon him. And his promise to every son and daughter and disciple that he sends is this. You have all the authority and power that you need because you have my spirit. You have all the power and the authority that you need because you have my spirit. And I'm with you always. So go and leave the results to me. So if you're nervous or you're afraid or you aren't sure you can do what he's asking you to do, you're not sure you can talk to the person that he's asking you to talk to, rejoice. Because that is where dependence upon God begins. At that moment that you say, I can't do it, God says, I know. But I can. And I will. Friends, dependence upon God, there is no better place for us to be because it is where we are weak, where we feel weak and where we feel incapable that the Bible tells us that Christ's power is made perfect. By the way, we should be encouraged by this. In all likelihood, the 12 disciples would have felt exactly the same way that you and I would feel. I mean, after all, these men 
were not religious scholars or teachers. They were fishermen. They were tax collectors with no formal training to do what Jesus had sent them to do. And it is through using men like these and people like you and I that God is most glorified. So don't worry. Don't worry. Unless, unless you believe that you can do what God is asking of you on your own. Don't worry unless you believe that you can do what God is asking you to do on your own. Then you can worry. In fact, you probably should worry. But if you go in God's name, with his authority, with his power, with his spirit, who knows what he might do? Friends, whatever eternal good God lets us be part of is the result of his moving, living, and leading through us. Disciples go with other disciples. Disciples go with Christ's power and authority. And disciples go dependent upon God for what they need. Listen to verses 8 and 9. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. I like the way that the message translates these verses. According to the message, verses 8 and 9 read this way. Jesus sent them off with these instructions. Don't think you need a lot of extra equipment for this. You are the equipment. No special appeals for funds. Keep it simple. You're the equipment. Keep it simple. Friends, Jesus Christ walked this earth in complete dependence upon God. He had no bank account, no pantry, no refrigerator, not even a home of his own to return to. But based on the fact that Jesus was often referred to as a drunkard and a glutton, he clearly had what he needed and more. Jesus trusted his father to give him what he needed as he needed it. And he asked his disciples, both the 12 and us, to live in the same way. Not just for our physical needs, but for the strength and the courage and the wisdom and the words to speak. And if God sends us, we can trust that he will provide what we need. We're just asked to trust after all, how silly and how ineffective would it be to tell people to turn to God by faith and trust in him if we ourselves do not? Disciples don't go it alone. They go with Christ's power and authority, and they go dependent upon God for what they need. And lastly, disciples go expecting rejection. Verse 10 says, and he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. If we are chosen disciples sent by God, it is critical to realize that the gospel we have been given will be a joy for some and an offense to others. It will be a joy for some and an offense to others. Even those who love you best, even those who know you most. 
After all, as we talked about last week, Jesus himself was rejected in his own hometown by his own people, even his family, for a time. So if people reject you because you declare the gospel of Jesus Christ made manifest in your life, take heart because it happened to Jesus first. You're in good company, the best company. Friends, there were those who saw Jesus say and do wonderful things, things that only God could say and do, and still they walked away. Still they refused, even some of his own followers. Do you believe it's because Jesus was ineffective in his preaching? Do you believe it's because he just didn't do the right signs and miracles? In verse 11, Jesus' command to his disciples when encountering those who rejected the gospel message is simple. Leave. Leave. But hear me on this. It takes judgment, and then it takes discernment, and it takes the wisdom of God to know what rejection or reception to the gospel looks like. It takes the wisdom of God for us to understand what rejection of the gospel or reception to the gospel looks like. Because not everyone who comes to Christ does so when they first encounter the gospel. It took 28 years for me. I bet somebody's got that beat in this room. It may take a good amount of time and reason an argument, and debate, and discussion for someone to finally receive or reject the gospel. But if it becomes clear that one's eyes are so blinded and their heart is so hardened to the gospel that they no longer want to see it, hear it, or receive it, our instruction is clear. Walk away. To shake the dust off of one's feet was traditional among Jews. If a Jew would enter a Gentile region, as they left, they would take off their sandals and they'd clap those sandals and bang the dust off of those things before they put them back on and stepped into Israeli territory. Because to them, there was no worse place to be. And in the same way, there is no worse thing in God's eyes than to reject his son. And the testimony of those who reject Jesus will not be forgotten. They will not be ignored. But hear me, the responsibility to save and the responsibility to judge belongs to God, not you and me. Called and sent, that is what it means to be a disciple. That's what it means to be the church. And there are those who go in the name of Christ, having neither been called or sent. And there are those who are called and sent, who have not yet gone. But it is when the called obediently go where they are sent, that God's kingdom is built and his will is done. Friends, we can listen all day long 
to what Jesus has to say, but it doesn't matter until we do it. So we've talked about the what, and we've talked about the so what. Let's finish with the now what's. First, the called and the sent spend time with and learn from Jesus. The apostles were incredibly familiar with who Jesus was, what he said, and the things he did. They sat with him, they learned from him, and they did and they said likewise. And you and I need to do the same. So that Jesus' words become our words. So that his deeds become our deeds. After all, the only one who can truly live the Christ life is Jesus himself. And incredibly, he has chosen to live his life out through people like you and me. Because like the apostles, we have been called. and We have been sent. Second, the called don't have to go very far to be where God has sent them. We don't have to go very far to be where God has sent us. I mean, international missions are critical and they are commanded. But even amongst those who are sent across the globe to proclaim the gospel, God's mission has to start in the home. It has to start there. Among your spouse, if you have one. Among your kids, if you have them where you worship together, where you read scripture together, where you study together, where you pray together, and are on mission together. Do you think that your wife and your kids are accidents? That God hasn't divinely given them to you for a reason? Then, God's mission finds its way into our extended families, to our friends, to our classmates, to our neighbors and to our coworkers. They are the people that God has uniquely sent you to because your neighbors are your neighbors and your friends are your friends and your coworkers are your coworkers. And God has uniquely placed you among them that he might save and call them that they too would be sent. At a minimum, where they live, where they work, where they go to school, and where these people play is where God has you. Your mission field, as it's been said, is right between your own two feet. Wherever you are, there it is. Do you want to know where God might be sending you? Where are you? That's where. That's where. At least to start. Being missional means that we are relational. The called and the sent are not distant, impersonal, or detached. Jesus did not send the apostles to hand out willy-nilly pamphlets or to invite people to a weekend worship service. Whenever you enter a house and stay there means spend time with these people and get to know and love them. Yes, we should give things to people to read. Yes, we should invite them to church, but don't do either of those things without also trying to establish a relationship. 
A relationship that lets them know that you care. A relationship that earns you the right to share the gospel with them. And a friendly tip, no extra charge. Instead of inviting yourself into their home, as we read about, why don't you invite them into yours? So as the called of God, would you ask him this week to reveal to you who he is sending you to? Who is he sending you to? And then have a conversation with that person. Invite them to coffee or to lunch or to dinner. And see what God does. See what he does. Remembering that the results are not up to you. But the obedience to go where he sends you and to whom he sends you is your responsibility. Not the results, but the obedience to go. So as the called and the sent of God, let's be faithful to his calling as he sends us out this week. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven who has called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light, who has called us out of death and into life, who has called us out of sin and into righteousness, we praise you. We thank you. Even the ability to hear and respond to your call is a gift of grace. That apart from your love, our ears are, are tuned to the voice of Satan. They are tuned to the voice of this world and our eyes are dazzled by all the shiny objects that promise life but can never deliver. Our hearts respond to our own crooked desires and they are ever prone to wander. We praise you, Lord, that you have given us the faith to believe and respond to your most glorious call. Help us to know and believe that as those called unto you, we are sent to a lost and dying world that is desperate for you. You have given us your spirit and all that we might need for our journeys. Let that truth give us confidence as we go. Let nothing that we do or say offend anyone except the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remind us that it is Christ himself that people come to or reject, not us. And help us live and speak boldly, filled with grace and truth. And if there are those among us today who you are calling to yourself, would you help them to know it and not to leave this place without having responded in faith? For the chosen in Christ among us, I, would you remind them of the gospel to which they have been saved? and help them to find their confidence in your spirit's assurance. Would you quiet Satan's accusations and lies and let us hear clearly your assuring words. You are mine. Place deep within our minds and our hearts those whom you would have us speak to, pray for, and reach out to this week and to give reason for the hope that we have in you. And then, would you give us eyes to see how you are moving and working in and through us for their salvation and your glory. In Christ's name, amen.